Well, our students are blessed to have such a wonderful music team leading them at their camps. We're blessed that they're a part of our church, amen? And uh, thank you guys just for serving all of us so well this morning, leading us before the throne of grace through song. Well, take your Bibles and turn to Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4, a a passage uh, that we're familiar with because we just went through the book of Philippians several years ago, but I'm sure um, it's the same for you that whenever we face a fresh crisis in our lives, God's spirit oftentimes brings to our minds a favorite verse or a familiar passage in God's word to comfort us or confront us depending on the need of the moment. If we were to go around and, uh, this morning with a microphone and I'm sure that all of you could share a verse or two that ministered to you this past week while we were dealing with the adverse effects of the historical, historic cold front that uh, crippled our state. But this was the verse that came to my mind, Philippians chapter 4, verse 11. Paul said, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having an abundance and suffering need. Many of us this past week experienced no power, no heat, no water, burst pipes, collapsed ceilings, flooded homes, and I'm sure there's other things you could add to that list. And hopefully it caused all of us to be more grateful for the everyday conveniences that we take for granted. We are blessed. Once the power came back in our house, I did a Google search, because that's what you do when the power comes back on. You gotta get back on your computer, right? I did a Google search to see how many people in our world live without electricity and clean water. That's what I was thinking about. Here we are whining and complaining when this is a way of life for far more people than we realize. We kept hearing about the millions of people in Texas who were without power and the tragedy and the outrage of it all and not to minimize the situation at all. But just to provide some perspective, you may know this, but there are roughly 7.8 billion people living on planet Earth right now. And it's estimated that 1.2 billion of those people have no access to electricity, which we consider a basic necessity. I'll never forget the first time I went to Uganda and I was staying with the Hurleys, which they happen to have electricity on their compound and their complex. But you just drive out their front gate like we did one night into the darkness and uh, driving through the village, I would have never known there was a village there until we turned and the headlights of the Jeep that Shannon was driving lit up this little hut. And here come these folks out of their little hut with a brand new baby in their arms that had been born in that hut with no electricity, no running water. And I was stunned, but that's just the way they live. And that hut is probably still there, and it probably still has no electricity, and it probably still has no running water but they're living their life as best they can in that 
situation. Some 2.1 billion people don't have access to safe drinking water. And here's a fun fact. I'm not sure how fun it is. 4.5 billion people either have no toilet or one that doesn't safely manage human waste. In other words, that's, that's 60% of the people in the world don't use toilets or at least ones that are safe. Again, I'll never forget my first trip to India and we arrived early, early in the morning and uh, slept really through the morning hours as we traveled to the place we were going. And I remember waking up around 6 a.m. on the bus and just kind of jostling uh, our way to Pune. And I just kind of began to look outside and look at the landscape. And one after another, after another, after another, after another, as we drove through the countryside, I saw these people walking out of their little huts, their little shacks that they lived in, and I couldn't understand exactly what they were doing, but they had a little shovel in their hand. And, uh, and again, I, got, I figured it out after a while because not only do you see people walking out there, you see all these people just squatting all along the road. And they were going out to do their morning duty, and you just did it outside, wherever you could find it, and you buried it in the dirt. And again, a way of life for so many people fellow human beings. Well, even though we know that, I'm sure many of us were frustrated, we were angered, we were tempted to complain about the unpleasant circumstances that we experienced this past week. And I'll be the first to admit, I like to be comfortable. I don't like it too cold. I don't like it too hot. I like to be able to wash my hands and brush my teeth and take a shower and flush my toilet whenever I want to. I don't like to have to clean up wet insulation and drywall in my kitchen. I don't like looking up into the attic through a gaping hole while I'm eating my Cinnamon Toast Crunch. But it is what it is, right? This week, I think God provided a lot of us with an opportunity to evaluate where we're at in our pursuit of that elusive Christian quality that we call contentment. And as often the case in the Ramey house, God leaves no question as to the specific lesson he's wanting us to learn through whatever he sovereignly ordains for our lives, and it just so happened in the providence of God, we woke up on Tuesday to our second day without power, and Kelly was continuing to faithfully read her Spurgeon's morning and evening. She reads it every morning and every night, and so the one for Tuesday morning was Philippians 4.11. For I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. And this is what Spurgeon said. These words show us that contentment is not a natural propensity of man. Weeds grow easily. Covetousness, discontent, and murmuring are as natural to man as thorns are to the soil. We do not need to sow thistles and brambles. They come up naturally enough because they're indigenous to earth. And so we do not need to teach men to complain. They complain fast enough without any education. But the precious things of the earth must be cultivated. In order to have wheat, we must plow and sow. If we want flowers, there must be the garden and all the gardener's care. Now, contentment is one of the flowers of heaven. And if we would have it, it must be cultivated. It will not grow in us by nature. It is the new nature alone that can produce it. And even, when, even then, we must be specially careful and watchful that we maintain and cultivate the grace that God has sown in us. Paul says, I have learned to be content, as much as to say he did not know how at one time. 
It cost him some pains to discover that great truth. No doubt he sometimes thought he had learned and then broke down. And when at last he had attained to it and could say, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content, he was an old gray-headed man. I think that's a good perspective there. Those of us that may not have gray hair yet, um, we shouldn't assume that we have arrived. Uh, some of you that maybe do have the gray hair, hopefully you're further along than we are when it comes to uh, learning to be content in whatever situation we are. Here he was, an old gray-haired man, upon the borders of the grave, <laughs> a poor prisoner shut up in Nero's dungeon at Rome. We need to remember Paul wrote these words when he was under house arrest uh, in Rome. He said, we might be well willing to endure Paul's inform infirmities and share the cold dungeon with him if we also might be by some means attained to his good stature. Do not indulge the notion that you can be contented with learning or learn without discipline. It is not a power that may be exercised naturally, but a science to be acquired gradually. We know this from experience. And then he said this. This is how he closed his little devotion. Christian, hush that murmur. In other words, quit your complaining. Even though it is natural and continue as a diligent pupil in the college of contentment. While we were huddled in our homes this last week trying to stay warm and working around rolling blackouts or boiling water or cleaning up water damage or fixing pipes or calling plumbers or making insurance claims or checking up on our loved ones, we were actually attending class in the College of Contentment. And we were given a test this week which some of us passed and some of us perhaps didn't do so well. Let's just say there was some stress and irritation in our home, like when I had just come down from crawling through our attic, one of my favorite things to do, um, trying to find out what was causing the drip in our kitchen ceiling to find my wife anxiously expressing her concern that the ceiling was going to fall through, and I angrily informed her that she was driving me crazy at that moment, and sure enough, just a few seconds later, what was in our attic ended up in our kitchen, just like she had predicted. Well, these kinds of sinful reactions reveal a lack of contentment. And the Bible tells us what is at the root of our contentment, what causes us to, to get flustered and anxious and angry and irritated when things don't go the way we would like them to. In James chapter four, James chapter four, verse one, it says, what is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with the wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. So James talks about desires, talks about cravings, talks about lust, talks about expectations here, and, and these lusts or desires go unfulfilled. Cravings are not satisfied. Expectations go unmet. Things that we wish for don't happen, and things we want we don't get. And so these unmet desires, these broken expectations, these wishes, these wants are at the root of our discontentment. Now, there's nothing wrong with a desire to have electricity or heat 
or water or to be able to flush your toilet or to enjoy a warm, cozy, relaxing few days by the fireplace, which some of you guys did and I'm still bitter at you. No, I'm just kidding, I'm not bitter at <laughs> Nothing wrong with those desires, but when we have to have these things to be happy and content, then our desires have become what's called inordinate. In other words, we want them too badly. These desires have gotten out of control. We, we've become controlled or mastered by these desires, by these wants, by these desires, even as innocent as they may be. The key is what do we do and how do we respond when we don't get what we want, when things don't go the way we expected or hoped they would? Do we get angry? Do we get anxious? Or do we choose to be content? Well, the Bible provides us with help and hope when it comes to uh, our quest for contentment. And probably, uh, I think Philippians chapter four is the most helpful passage in all of God's word that addresses this issue, and it's, it's not just an exhortation here, it's really more of an example. Paul was one of the, the examples, or one of the best examples of someone who had learned the secret to being content. And so Paul revealed that secret to us in this passage. And so as Paul wrapped up this letter to the church in Philippi, he wanted to express his gratitude here uh, for them and for their faithful, generous financial support, we see that in verse 10, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last you've revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. Verse 14, nevertheless, you've done well to share with me in my affliction. You yourselves also know, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel after I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the, in the matter of giving and receiving, but you alone, for even in Thessalonica, you sent a gift more than once for my needs. And so he was wanting to thank them for their generous support. However, at the same time, he wanted to make sure that they knew he wasn't hinting about needing or wanting them to send more money. And more than that, he wanted them to know that he was in no way dependent on their support. Since he'd learned to be content in whatever circumstances God had ordained for his life. And so you get the sense as you're reading these verses, particularly verses 10 through 20, he seems to be repeating himself quite a bit, almost like tripping over himself to make sure that he makes it clear that, hey, while I appreciate your generous support, I really, at the end of the day, don't need it because I've learned to be content, whether you send it or not. And really what comes of this is a revelation of how to be content. And there are six secrets here to being content in Christ, six things that we need to do in order to experience contentment in our lives. And this has been a good passage for me to meditate on this week. I thought it would be good for us to think about this morning for a few minutes and help us maybe regain perspective a bit. What are these six secrets to being content in Christ? Number one, we need to understand God's process we need to understand God's process. Notice he says, not that I speak from want, for I've learned to be content. Literally, I've learned by experience. In other words, this was a habit that was developed over time through regular practice. Again, as Spurgeon pointed out so well in his morning and evening devotion, their contentment doesn't come naturally to any of us. Complaining does, but contentment doesn't. In other words, we're not born content. 
Our sin nature is bent towards grumbling and complaining. You don't have to teach your kids how to complain. Anybody ever teach, teach their kids how to complain? It just kind of came naturally, right? Philippians 2.14, we're in the same neighborhood. Paul says, do all things without grumbling or disputing. So contentment here is something we all have to learn. The question is, how do we learn it? Well, very simply, God puts us in unpleasant and oftentimes unplanned situations that give us an opportunity to learn to be content. It's the only way to learn how to be content. And so all of us are in an ongoing process of learning to be content. None of us have arrived yet. And the way we become all that God wants us to be is to go through trials. James chapter one, verse two, consider all joy My brethren, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance or endurance. And then he said, let endurance or perseverance have its its work in you. Why? So that you might be mature and complete, lacking nothing. You may have heard this before, but it's true. No matter where you are in life, you're always in one of three places. You're either about to enter a trial, you're in a trial, or you just came out of a trial. There's never anything other than those three things. You're either either you're about to go into a trial, you're in a trial, or you just came out of a trial. Why is that? Well, for those of you that um, have a copy of Jerry Bridges' Trusting God, Even When Life Hurts, it might be good to to dust that off and and, uh, get back into it because there's a lot of great truth in that book, and and really the book is all about God's sovereignty, God's wisdom, and God's love. And because of those things that we know to be true about God, he can be trusted, even when life hurts. Bridges writes this, if you stop and think about it, you will realize that most godly character traits can only be developed through adversity. God in his infinite wisdom knows exactly what adversity we need to grow more and more into the likeness of his son. He not only knows what we need, but when we need it and how best to bring it to pass in our lives. And if you just consider the Apostle Paul, he's the guy saying, hey, I've learned to be content. Well, how did he learn it? Well, how about this? 2 Corinthians chapter 4, excuse me, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, he said, in much endurance and afflictions and hardships and distresses and beatings and imprisonments and tumults and labors and sleeplessness in hunger. In, in 2 Corinthians, same book there, uh, chapter 11, Verse 23, in far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of death, five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes, three times I've beaten with rods, once I was stoned, three times I was shipwrecked, a night and a day I spent in the deep, I've been on frequent journeys and dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers in the sea, dangers among false brethren. I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights and hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure with burst pipes. Oh, that's not there, but you get the point, right? And then even in the next chapter, 2 Corinthians 12, he talks about this thorn in the flesh that he had begged God three times to, to take away. And God said, no, my grace is sufficient for you. For power is perfected in weakness, most gladly, therefore, I would rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. So how did Paul get to the place where he could say, I've learned to be content in every situation? Well, because he was in pretty much every circumstance you can imagine. He'd been there. He'd done that. And it was through adversity. 
And the point is we all tend to get soft in times of blessing, but we tend to grow strong in times of adversity. Isn't that true? Again, Bridges writes this. He said, quote, God knows exactly what he intends we become, and he knows exactly what circumstances, both good and bad, are necessary to produce that result in our lives. God makes no mistakes. He knows infallibly, with infinite wisdom, what combination of good and bad circumstances will bring us more and more into sharing his holiness. His blending of adversity and blessing is always exactly right for us. So the first secret here to experiencing contentment in our life is to understand God's process. It's a learning process. It takes time. And honestly, the only time we'll ever graduate from the college of contentment is when we die and go to heaven. That's the graduation day. So we need to understand God's process. Secondly, we need to embrace God's providence. We need to embrace God's providence. Look at what he says here. He said, I've learned to be content, verse 11, in whatever circumstances I am. And then he goes on to describe the full spectrum of human experiences, the ups and downs, the good times, the bad times. Some plans work out, some plans don't. It's all part of the province of God in our lives. He says, I know how to get along with humble means. I also know how to live in prosperity in, an, in, in any, every circumstance. I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. So nothing is more helpful in learning to be content than understanding and embracing God's providence. You say, what does that mean? Well, providence is God's constant care for us, his absolute rule over us for his glory and the good of our lives. Again, Bridges says this, did your car break down when you could least afford the repairs? Always seems to happen that way, doesn't it? Did you miss an important meeting because the plane you were to fly and develop mechanical problems? The God who controls the stars in their courses also controls nuts and bolts and everything on your car and on that plane you were to fly in. If we are to trust God, we must learn to see that he is continually at work in every aspect and every moment of our lives. In other words, nothing, not even the smallest virus escapes God's care and control. By the way, there's still COVID going on. Did you know that? Seems like that got forgotten, didn't it? I can tell you what, there was no social distancing in the plumbing aisle at Ace Hardware because I was in it, okay? <laughs> and we were crawling all over each other to try to find whatever we could to fix our stuff. And it was like, who cares about coronavirus? I got to fix my pipes, you know? Whatever situation we find ourselves in, we are there by divine appointment. It is God's will for our life. That's the way God wanted it to happen or wanted it to be, and there's a reason why he planned it that way. Another book that some of you may have read or have on your shelf that maybe this would be a good time to pull it off and read it, it's Jeremiah Burroughs, uh, the little Puritan paperback called The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. And this is how he defines contentment. He said, it's the sweet, inward, quiet gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. I wasn't feeling very sweet or gracious towards my wife. I wasn't freely submitting to and delighting in God's wise and fatherly disposal <laughs> the way he was caring for me 
Burroughs goes on, he says, contentment is submitting and taking pleasure in God's disposal. A contented heart sees the wisdom of God in everything. The Lord knows how to order things better than I. The Lord sees further than I do. I can only see things at present, but the Lord sees a great while from now. So we need to realize that even though God can do whatever he wants, right, for infinitely love, loving, wise reasons, he may not do what we want him to do or pray that he'll do. So it really takes two things, I think, to embrace God's will for our lives, to embrace God's providence, as we're talking about here. And that is, number one, humility. Humility, which lives with the heart that says, God, you know what's best. You know, you know what's best, God. Rather than, I don't deserve this. I deserve better than this. Well, that's pride. Because we all know we don't deserve anything but hell. And so no matter what happens to us, we're always better than we deserve, amen? So it takes humility, but it also takes faith where we're absolutely convinced that God knows what's best for us. We're convinced of that, and we need to be able to honestly say, God, I don't have to understand you and your ways. I'm just gonna trust you. I'm just gonna trust you. Again, Bridge is so helpful in his trusting God. Again, if some of you don't have that book yet, haven't been exposed to it yet, this would be a good time to, to get a copy and and own it. It's just one of the most helpful resources I've ever been exposed to. I probably recommended this book more than any other book um, in, in my life in ministry. But he says this, quote, God does not delight in causing us to experience pain or heartache. He always has a purpose for the grief he brings or allows to come into our lives. Most often, we do not know what that purpose is, but it is enough to know that his infinite wisdom and perfect love have determined that the particular sorrow is best for us. And then I love this. He says, God never wastes pain. He always uses it to accomplish his purpose. And his purpose is for his glory and our good. Therefore, we can trust him when our hearts are aching and our bodies are racked with pain. Trusting God in the midst of our pain and heartache means that we accept it from him. An attitude of acceptance says that we trust God, that he loves us and knows what is best for us. What a godly attitude. But that's what comes from embracing God's providence. Knowing that God is in charge, he's sovereign, he's in control, and all things work together for his glory and our good. Thirdly, though there's more here, and that is we need to learn to rely on God's power. If you want to be content, you need to learn to rely on God's power. And we come to verse 13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. A verse we all know and love probably one of the most well-known, often quoted verses in the Bible, yet I would submit to you that it's one of the most misunderstood and misapplied verses in the Bible. This has become a, a motto for success in sports or your career. Or I can do all things in Christ, through Christ, right? Rather than a, the, the, the deep, powerful, theological principle that it, that it was intended to be here. And so we need to be careful not to rip this verse out of its context, Paul wasn't implying here that he could do anything he put his mind to or anything he wanted to. He was simply saying that through the strength that Christ provided, he could do everything and anything that was God's will for him to do. 
Everything he just described in verse 12 that he had experienced, he could do all that. He could survive all that. He could endure all that through Christ and the strength that he provides. In other words, God never calls us to do something or to endure something that he also doesn't provide us with the strength to do it or endure it. 1 Corinthians 10, 13, no temptation or trial has overtaken you but that which is common to man. And uh, I guess it was a little comforting to be able to actually turn on the TV and uh, see the news stations showing um, a lot of other people with burst pipes that were a whole lot worse than ours. Like, it looked like a rainstorm in their living room. I was like, wow, okay, no temptation has overtaken us, but that was a common man right now. And God is faithful. He'll not allow you to be tempted or tried beyond what you're able, but with every trial, with every temptation, he provides a way of escape so you can endure it. In other words, we can handle whatever God has ordained for us. God never puts more on us than we can handle that we can deal with. And I think we just need to come to grips with the fact that being content is not just difficult, it's impossible. It's humanly impossible. We will never be content in our own strength. We must rely on the strength that God provides us in Christ. That's Paul's point here. So the question is, well, what are some practical ways then to rely on or to lean on or plug into Christ's strength? How do we uh, abide in Christ, right? John 15 talks about that. To be connected to the vine. How, How do we do that? Well, I think you could say this. Number one, confess any sinful cravings and desires that are, that are opposed to Christ. So first of all, you got to get right with Christ. And if there's things that you're wanting and coveting and desiring that, that have, have, have become inordinate, uh, or maybe you just know they're sinful desires that are opposed to Christ, confess those, admit those. And then study God's word. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. And then give your burdens to God through prayer. In Jesus' name, we come to God the Father through our intercessory Christ, right? We pray in the name of Jesus. So pray, study God's word, be filled with the spirit of Christ. Another word for who? The Holy Spirit, who was the helper sent by Christ. I will send you another helper who will enable you to live out these truths that I'm giving to you. And then fifthly, stay focused on Christ's example, Hebrews 12, 3. Fixing your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. And then lastly, I think it comes down to developing such an intimate relationship with Christ that nothing else matters. You could go through any of these things that Paul describes here in verse 12, and at the end of the day, it doesn't matter because Christ is enough for me. As long as I got Christ, I'm good. You can take everything else away from me. Take away my power, take away my heat, take away my water, take away my toilet, take away it all. And as long as I have Jesus, I'm good. So rely on God's power through Christ. Number four is focus on God's people. 
focus on God's people. Again, this is where we get back into this, um, really what this section is all about. It's really about this offering that they had sent him to support him, kind of a missionary support, if you will. Notice what he says in verse 14, nevertheless, you have done well to share with me in my affliction. You yourselves also know, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel after I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, but you alone, for even in Thessalonica, you sent a gift more than once for my needs. Not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek for the profit which increases to your account. So again, Paul changed his tone a little bit here and, and, and just added a word of clarifi- clarification so the Philippians wouldn't think he didn't need or didn't appreciate their most recent financial gift that they had sent him. But, but notice, his focus wasn't on himself. It was on the needs of others. He was more excited for their gain than by their gift. In other words, I'm, I'm just excited, he says, because this is gonna profit you. I'm not excited that it profited me. I'm, I'm glad this is profiting you. And so again, this is a, a good reminder. Paul wasn't focused on himself, but on the needs of others. He was, the other, other people were always uppermost in Paul's mind. He was totally unselfish. And that's why he said in Philippians 2, 3, and 4, which again, we're right here in the neighborhood, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourself. Don't merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. And it's common that if we just sit around focusing on our own problems, our broken expectations, our unfulfilled desires, our unrealized dreams, our trials, our tribulations, it's very easy for us to get miserable. And sometimes I've actually given this counsel to someone who's dealing with depression is, hey, you know what? I think part of your problem is not to minimize what you're facing, but part of it is you're just so self-absorbed. All you think about is yourself and your problems and your issues. And, and frankly, you need to stop having a pity party, which is actually a pride party, and, and, and get involved in other people's lives. Get your eyes off yourself and, and, and you'll quickly realize that your problems aren't as bad as you thought they were. And I was so blessed by the guy who came over to our house around 10 o'clock or stayed till midnight, I guess, capping off our, our pipe and uh, come to find out he had way more issues in his house. He's still working on fixing issues in his house. He didn't even have electricity. And he's, he was over at our house helping us out. And I commended him for being Christ-like, putting other people in front of himself, meeting other people's needs, even though he had far greater needs. So, focus on God's people, focus on other people beside yourself. You wanna be content. And number five, trust God's provision. Trust God's provision, verse 18, but I have received everything in full and have an abundance. I'm amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you have sent, a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. And here it is, and my God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. 
Notice, that's a promise, by the way. My God will supply all your needs. Not our greeds, the things we want, right? But our needs. And uh, it was encouraging to see God faithfully fulfilling this promise to us as a family by using Snapchat of all things. One of her kids happened to Snapchat our kitchen debacle and sent it to one of their friends who talked to another friend who talked to their dad who texted me and said, hey, I heard you got some problems. I'll come over there and give you a little redneck fix till the plumber gets there. I said, come on, man. Because I'm like curly in three stooges right now. I don't know what's going on. And uh, so here he came. The Lord provided. I I didn't reach out. The Lord knew we needed somebody because I'm a mechanical moron. And so he provided somebody that knew what to do. And and then he said, hey, make, you know, tomorrow, go, go, go to the hardware store and see if you can get a cap and we'll actually cap this thing off and do it right. And so there I was at Ace Hardware, Black Friday, special there in the plumbing aisle. And I'll tell you what, there was guys all over the place talking about, hey, this is this, and there's your stuff's flying around. I'm like, and I'm standing in the midst of this thing going, I don't even know what I'm looking for. And these guys are like, you know, talking about, yeah, you need this, and you're doing this shark bite thing. And everyone's like, what is a shark bite? Never heard of a shark bite. And uh, next thing, a guy, you know, this one guy who had kind of been the most vocal and cussing and all this kind of stuff in the aisle, he steps out and he says, hey, man, is this what you're looking for? I said, yeah, I think that's what I'm looking for. He says, well, I don't need all these. I'll go buy them, and uh, we'll rip the package open. I'll give you one. I'm like, okay, that sounds great. I got money in my car. I can pay you. No, don't worry about it, man. Just, I was like, the Lord provides, right? Some little shark bite thing I never knew, knew existed. Listen, sometimes God graciously fulfills our desires. He gives us what we want when we want it. And when he does that, we should thank him. But when he doesn't, we need to trust him to give us the strength to do without. Psalm 131, Psalm 131, verse 2. Love, love, this, um, love this image here. Psalm 131, verse 2. David said, surely I have composed and quieted my soul like a weaned child rests against his mother. My soul is like a weaned child within me. You moms know about this. The weaning process, right? Where you broke your child's dependent on your milk by teaching them to eat other things instead. And this is a painful process, not just for the mom, but for the child and The child fusses and complains and cries and resists and struggles and doesn't understand why mom won't let him have what he wants and he gets mad and he throws a temper tantrum and he fusses and sulks and the mother knows though this is all necessary in order for a child to grow up and mature. And over time the child calms down and no longer fusses and frets about not having what he used to think was so indispensable. And the mother, interesting, the mother is able to take that child in her arms and rests his head quietly on her breast and he's content to not have what he had formerly wanted so bad. And he's developed a new, deeper bond 
with his mom. And what's happened there? He's learned to trust that his mom loves him and to submit to her wise care of him, even though it isn't exactly what he wanted or expected. I mean, isn't that a beautiful picture of, of a child of God learning to be content with God's provision for them? In order for us to grow and mature as a Christian, God has to wean us off certain things. And oftentimes it's a painful process and we fuss and we fret and we throw a tantrum, we whine and complain and we resist, we struggle. We don't understand what he's doing or why he's doing it. And sometimes we get mad at God and sit around and sulk. God really doesn't love me. If he did, he'd, you know. But eventually as we grow out of our spiritual infancy into a deeper, more intimate relationship with God, we're able to go without the things that once seemed so necessary. And we find comfort in the arms of him who denies them to us, trusting his tender love, submitting to his wise care. And just like a weaned child learns to be content with what his mother gives him to eat, so we need to learn to be content with what God provides for us. Even when it isn't what we wanted or thought we needed. I've got a little piece of paper over my desk at home that says this. Lord, I'm willing to receive what you give, lack what you withhold, and relinquish what you take. That's a scary prayer to pray. To be willing to receive what you give, lack what you withhold, and relinquish what you take. So we need to learn to trust God's provision. And then lastly, and quickly, we need to sing God's praise. You want to be content? You need to sing God's praise. Look at verse 20. Now to our God and Father, be the glory forever and ever. Amen. So as Paul considered this this great truth that God supplies all the needs of his children. He broke out in praise as he so often did. And really worship is the only appropriate response of a child of God when we consider all the ways that God has provided for us and, and the way he guides us and directs us and protects us and helps us through our times of need. Job, worship the Lord. Lord. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. The psalmist, no matter what situation he found himself, he says, yet, but I will praise you. And lest we forget, when Paul came to Philippi the first time, he was arrested and beaten and thrown into jail along with Silas. And at midnight, what were they doing? They were singing hymns of praise in that jail cell. And so we too need to be quick to praise the Lord rather than to question the Lord. And no matter what's going on in our lives, there should always be 10,000 reasons to sing God's praise. I love that song, 10,000 Reasons, right? And so if we accept all of our circumstances as God's will for our life, then we should praise him and glorify him for putting on display his sovereignty, his wisdom, his love. And ultimately, we should want God to be glorified by the way that we respond to every circumstance he ordains for our lives. And we need to remember that our chief end in life was the chief end of man, not to have all of our desires met, but what? 
The chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for your word and just how it's always so timely. Uh, Lord, I know that this passage has been used by you this week in my heart to, to comfort me and convict me all at the same time. And I pray that you would uh, use it uh, appropriately in each one of uh, these folks' hearts. And Lord, I pray that we would um, continue to honor you with our response to life's trials and that we would demonstrate a, a, a Christ-centered contentment that is only possible in and through him, and that as people see our contentment in Christ, that it would pique their curiosity and give us an opportunity to tell them how they too can find contentment in him and him alone. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.